Good morning. My name is Cor Shemleski. I am the pastor of outreach and assimilation here at Hope uh, in my third year. And when I came on staff, I had, I don't know, three or four things they kind of, you know, put me in charge of. But there was really, in, in these things, there was only one objective. There was only one objective communicated to me. And that was, don't suck. That was, that was what was told to me, like... I'm like, I, I should be able to do that, but it's, I mean, I'm telling you, I haven't always lived up to that. I've actually sucked um, at time or two, but I had the opportunity to go to Atlanta with Steve. I think some of you heard that last Sunday. I had the chance to leave on Sunday uh, with Steve, and, and when the opportunity came before me, it was like, come on, I cannot suck at a conference in Atlanta. I should be able to do that. So I go down there, we go down there, and, and I get a call from my wife. And I had sucked back at home. And so when I got the phone call, it was like bad news. And here's what I mean. My wife had told me half a dozen times to check out what the smell was in our house. (laughs) So she had told me, you know, prior to that, I don't know, six or seven times, that there was a smell. Okay? So there, there is a smell. I want you to check out the smell. I couldn't find the smell. In the one time that I went and checked. And, and that is, I'm at fault. When your wife asks you six times to find a smell, and you try one time and don't find it, try again. Okay? So I get, the, I get the phone call in Atlanta. Her dad and my wife found the smell. Okay? When I got home, Sitchi's sewer and water told me that over time, the foundation around my sewage pipe gave way. My pipe had dropped so drastically that it was no longer acting as a sewage pipe should. It was now sort of acting as kind of a holding pool for our family's sewage. I don't know about you guys, but I want my sewage pipe to act as a sewage pop, not, not, not a cesspool. Don't act as a pool. You're a pipe. I want you to take my sewage from here, transfer it to the curb. And the, and the foundation had... Uh, you know, under, not like curbside, just to the bigger pipe below the street. And so, um, it, was, it was not good. It was not good. I came home, and, well, I got pictures. Uh, this, is, this is the front of my house, and um, that's the guy. He's one of the helpers. He was one of the guys that dug the hole. He's actually in a good spot to be able to talk to the guy in the hole. If he didn't bend down, the guy in the hole couldn't hear him. That's how far down they went. Look at the next one. See there, he's, he's, he's talking to the guy down in the hole. And you see all the shovels? They dug this by hand, pulled out a jackhammer, got through the frozen stuff, got down in there. Now can we see down into the hole? So that's, that's Tim. He's down in the hole. And I had him stand up just so we could kind of get a visual of how... Okay, he's almost six feet tall. The grade of the yard is still like four feet above his head. 
And they dug this hole. So there's guys literally squatting down in this hole with a four-foot shovel, getting some dirt, standing up, getting the shovel back over their head, and throwing the dirt up out of the hole. I mean, this thing is at least 10 feet deep. And they dug this thing. And that's my basement. It, didn't just, it wasn't just contained outside my house. It was inside my house. These guys were digging through sewage inside my basement. There's dirt slash sewage there. Uh, in order to break up the concrete with their jackhammer, they, they provided like a nice, you know, kind of a winter dusting of concrete uh, white in my whole basement. So everything's covered. And now there's the anticlimactic end. Last picture, a sewage pipe. I didn't get anything better than what I had. It's just like replacement. You know, it's just like if I go and spend a amount of money on a car, I get a new car. Sewage pipe, I just, I mean, for that kind of money, my dad had a phrase. He said, for that kind of money, that pipe should dance. I mean, <laughs> I got to get something better than just sewage, but we are so thankful uh, to, to have that back. So I've had that as one part of my week and preparing for this message as another part of the week and somehow they're going to just come together like that. So just together and hopefully we can learn from both. But, but, that, that will come in importance. The foundation, the pipe giving way, the stench, ooh, the stench, uh, all of it coming together. Okay, we are in the middle of a series. It's called, Who Do You Say That I Am? Meeting Jesus Christ Through His Signs and Ministry. It's a study on the book of John. Okay, John was a follower of Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples of Christ. He was to be a witness. He was to watch and see what Jesus did. Okay, so that one day he could then go tell other people what Jesus did. To be a witness for him. To give testimony. To share. Hey, this is what Jesus did. And he does that for you and I. And we get to read his gospel account. We get to read his account of how he followed Jesus and what happened. And what just happened prior to this, something incredible. Okay? Something that you had to be there almost to, to believe it. It's, it's almost unbelievable. Jesus Christ just raised a guy from the dead. Okay, you must be aware of this because there's no like. I mean, that's a big deal. That's incredible. That should shock you. Um... I mean, he, Lazarus should get like a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records, shouldn't he? I mean, here's his name, Lazarus. What'd you do? I stayed dead four days, and then I came back to life. And then there's like a little footnote, Lazarus, he's like in a picture smiling like, I stayed dead for one day longer than Jesus. You know, it's like, he's just totally like, you know, like bragging. I mean, he's just like, but this is, I mean, this is astounding stuff. This guy was dead and Jesus Christ raised him from the dead. This is incredible. Now, prior to this, okay, prior to this, we met Jesus Christ in a number of different ways. Okay? He was teacher. He was water walker on top of the water guy, dude. He was bread of life. He was Messiah, teacher, healer. And to all these past credentials, he adds to it, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay? What does that mean? In John 11, verses 25 and 26, he tries to explain it. This is Jesus' explanation, okay? Whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Thanks, Jesus. It's all cleared up for me now. (laughs) Essentially, what he's trying to say is that there's something about me and who I am that I have the power over death, And that has implications for you. 
He's taking his celebrity to a whole nother level. If it's true, it has incredible implications. Okay? He's not just one guy coming down, seeing a blind man, and healing that one guy. He's not just seeking out students, finding 12, and saying, hey, follow me, I'm going to be your teacher. He's not even a Messiah of an entire nation, the Jewish people, the one they've been waiting for. He's not just that. He is the resurrection and the life for anybody who has died, anybody who is dying, and anybody who will die. Jesus Christ as the resurrection touches every single person ever. And that is astounding and incredible. And I want you to meet Jesus Christ this morning as the resurrection and the life. Last week, Steve looked at uh, different people. Some people see this. They hear about it. They look at Lazarus and they believe. They trust in Jesus. They say, gosh, he, he does have the power of death. I believe him. And Jesus is going, yeah, I mean, I, I said I was going to do it. I, I told you to watch. And all of a sudden, woof, here comes Lazarus up from the dead. And it's just like, then that's all I got. I just showed I could do it. It's like, so people do. People see that and they believe. And others don't. Others don't believe. Not only that, don't, they, they don't just passively disbelieve. They get religious leaders together. They call a council. And these religious leaders decide that Jesus Christ, okay, he's either rocked in the boat at the very least, or at most, he's going to sink this ship. He's going to take down our whole nation. We're going to lose our authority, our influence. Our religious leadership is going to be just canceled. We're not going to have anything. And so they make a decision. John 11, verse 53, it says, So from that day on, they, the religious leaders, made plans to put him to death. Jesus comes to them as their resurrection and the life. And ironically, they say, we're going to put you to death. And this became for Jesus the start of a march towards death. He knew it. He knew it. It says in Luke 18, verses 31 and 34, he's talking to his 12 disciples. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man may, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. It says also that, that Jesus says, I can't even walk openly. I can't even walk in the open anymore. That's how bad it's gotten. That's what kind of atmosphere has been created with all this. So this brings us to John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, our passage for this morning. And in this passage, just like other ones, we're going to see people who believe and those who don't. We're going to see people who love Jesus Christ and those who don't. And the reality is, is Jesus this morning is saying, who do you say that I am? I want you to meet me through my signs, through my ministry, through what's happening in this story. And I want to ask you, who do you say that I am? Do you believe me or not? Do you love me? Do you loathe me? What is it? So it reads, we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my, for the, sorry, for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So this, the first two verses of this section kind of set the scene. They set the stage. The Passover is approaching. They're in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. The Passover is coming. What is that? It's an annual feast to remember what God had done way back in the history of this people group. Okay? We pick it up in Exodus. You know, Moses is coming before the, the Pharaoh and just saying, let my people go. God has called us to go out and worship him. Let us go. And he says, no. And he reacts both to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and to Moses and all the Israelites in a way that says, I want to communicate to both people, both leaders, and say, I am God and there's no one else like me. Okay. In this case, he does that through a massive deliverance for the people of Israel and Moses and a plague coming about the, the Egyptians. Okay. We pick it up in Exodus 12. Okay, it comes to the final plague. He's, he's sent plagues and the Pharaoh's heart is being hardened. And he's not giving over the Israelites to go worship God. And it says, The final plague was the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And God's trying to communicate in this that he is God and there is no other. And he makes a distinction in this story between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Israelites, he says, here's what you're going to do. Make a sacrifice. Take the blood. Smear it on your doorframe. And when I come around and I bring this plague of the firstborn, okay, I'm going to pass over. I'm going to see that blood. See your doorframe. I'm going to pass over your house so this plague does not come to you. The firstborn of your family will not die. And so then this Passover meal, this feast comes out of that, an annual tradition of thinking back and saying, God, you, you passed over our house. And so they were called to remember this day. In six days, Jesus is going to do this in Jerusalem. People flock to Jerusalem to experience this Passover feast. Six days, they're going to be in Jerusalem. Okay, downtown Baghdad is how we referred to it in the past. But right now they're in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem, southeast, and they're having this party, a resurrection party. For Jesus, which is nice, you know. When I do something in my family, a lot less than a resurrection, sometimes I get a dinner party. So it's nice that a resurrection gets you a dinner party. That's, that's pretty cool in this day, in this culture. But they're there. Jesus is there. Martha's serving. Lazarus is there. Most likely his disciples are there. And we don't know what other people would be there at this time. But now events are going to take place. They're going to highlight who people love, who people don't love. Their lives are going to demonstrate what's there in their heart. And it starts with a crack. Mary takes out this perfume, expensive perfume, 
she breaks it. She cracks it open. And she pours it out on Jesus. This, part, this brings the party to a dead stop. Just a dead stop. You just hear the crack of the bottle. And then Mary, coming forward towards Jesus, dumps it out on his feet. Okay? Usually they use water okay, to wash their feet. She dumps the perfume on the feet. Then she, not only that, she gets down and she wipes his feet off. When you anoint somebody in this culture, you don't wipe. Okay? So there's two, two, two things that she's just breaking down. Barriers that people have, have had in the past as far as worshiping. Okay? Third thing, she unbinds her hair. Which, typically, in that culture, signals you are a woman of loose morals. So three different ways. She just breaks down cultural barriers and just gives extravagant, extravagant, excessive, sacrificial worship of Jesus. Can you imagine how awkward it would have been to be there to see this? Watching this. I mean, there was a resurrection party. Now it's like a kegger or something. I mean, it's just like, this is not what I had in mind, Jesus, when I was coming to your resurrection party. It's just like everything is turned up on end. And if it weren't hard enough to kind of deal with this awkwardness, the perfume just envelops the house. I mean, think of my sewage house this week, just the opposite thing. You know, it's like, what we had, it's like, you know, but it's perfume and it's, it's seeping out the doors and the windows. I mean, did anybody's mom ever go through like a potpourri phase? Was that only my mom? I mean, it was everywhere and it stunk. It was in every single room. It had different colors, different scents. It was everywhere. And then she had some on the stove, like simmering the whole day. I mean, what is, what is, what is that? And just totally took care of our house. But all of that, all of this taking place, the breaking of the bottle, the pouring it out, breaking down cultural barriers on, on stereotypes of what they thought it meant to worship and to anoint and to bless, to get to the point of love. I mean, can't we just, don't we just all feel like we can see right into Mary's heart right now? I mean, don't you feel like that? Like there's just, there's just such a love for God that's coming forth from this action. She loves him deeply. We saw that from Tim's, uh, what Tim shared earlier as well. And here's, here's a point I want to keep coming back to is, what is in your heart? What is in your heart? Because I would contend that what is in your heart will come out in your life. Your life will be a demonstration of what you're experiencing in your heart. It was true of Mary. Uh, our, our lives, my life, your life, will become a demonstration of what is in our heart. And daily, God gives us, moment by moment, the opportunity to worship him, to love him. We have a choice in our heart. Do we want to choose him? Do we want to believe in him? Mary's life demonstrated a love for Christ. Judas, not so much. And that's where we turn right now. Verse 4. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. At first glance, this is a great question, right? Like, can you imagine what a blessing it would have been for the poor to receive such a generous donation? 
I don't know, how, I don't know what an annual year's salary would be for a worker. I don't know, put it in present day dollars. I don't know, thousands, 15, 20, I don't know. Can you imagine taking that in cash and just being like, here you go. And your service to the poor, I give you this. What a blessing that could have been. And to everybody at that table, reclining at this resurrection party, they don't get insight into, into Judas's heart like we do. And so it's like, that's a great question. Great question. But the reality is what we're let into, what John gives us a glimpse into is his heart. He doesn't care for the poor. He cares about himself. He doesn't have a love for Christ deep down that's bringing forth a life of love. There's selfishness. There's a hardening towards God, towards Christ. And it's coming out in his life. The extravagant worship of Mary is held in stark contrast to the actions and the life of Judas in this passage. And the reality is, if we were sitting there and we didn't have this background information, we might think, man, Judas has got it together. Let's let him head up a committee at church. And then this Mary, let's, let's tuck her in the corner. She's kind of... You know, it's important for us, I think it should get our attention that the people at this table don't have that same glimpse into his heart. And so I think the message, the question for us is, what is in your heart? What is in our heart today? Man, you can deceive people. Judas can deceive people. He did deceive people. But what is going on in your heart will eventually come to light. Okay, The word that talks about what was he doing, he was pilfering. He was taking small amounts of money off top of the money bag for himself. Okay, For himself. Small amounts, but he did it habitually. He did it often and became a habit for him. It became a pattern of his life. He didn't wake up one morning excited to betray Jesus Christ. You know, excited to take his own life because he's so heartbroken. It happened one decision after another decision after another decision after another decision. Has sin ever come to you and said, hey, I'm sin. Uh, I'd like to take your life. Uh, so why don't you just sit back, take it easy. It's like, no. Sin holds out this hand and says, here's pleasure. Then as we're drawn in, sin stabs us in the back. That's the reality of it. And it should come as a caution to us. It should come as a strong warning for us who are even in the church. Here's Judas, saw the resurrection, walked with Jesus Christ, witnessed all the same things that the other disciples did. But his heart became hardened in this. Okay, uh, back to my confession. It didn't bless my family to sit idly by while the stank started to infiltrate our house. Okay? I mean, that's just like obvious to me now. It's like, I could have done something about this two weeks ago before I went to Atlanta. I mean, it's just, my family wasn't blessed by my waiting. And, and I'm here to say, man, I encourage you, if you see anything in your life, if you feel any tugging right now as the Spirit kind of poking at you, got his finger on something, do not resist that. Do not resist that. Your life will come to demonstrate the inner workings of your heart. What is invisible will become visible. Verse 7, Jesus replied, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It's like, whoa, is Jesus dissing the poor? No. 
No, give to the poor, serve the poor, bless the poor, minister to them. But his point is saying, there comes a time, there comes a place where it's appropriate to be extravagant in worship. There's a time where you do break the flask and you pour out the perfume. He's saying, do that. Why? Because you're not always going to have me. He says that. You're not always, I'm not always going to be there. He is heading towards Jerusalem to his death. And if there were ever a time to worship Jesus Christ fully, with sacrifice, with extravagance, the time was now. Verse 9, meanwhile, all this is going on. Okay, all this is going on. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. What's happening now is that other people are hearing, if he really has the power over death, could he help me? Could, you know what I talked about earlier? This affecting every single person ever. It's like, people are hearing that and they're coming. And they're, because of Lazarus and because of Jesus, they're believing. And then there's this other group of people, the religious leaders who are saying, this is proof. Look at all the people flocking to him. This is proof. We need to kill him. We need to arrest him. We got to get him. And not only that, poor Lazarus, man. He's pulled into this whole thing. Didn't get, didn't, you know, wasn't asked, hey, should, do you want to be raised from the dead? He just was, okay? And now that he is, it's like, all right, we're, now we've got other people that are going to come and kill you. Why? Because Jews are believing in Jesus because of you. And he's like, I didn't ask for that. But now he's pulled into this whole thing. And we get, we get a glimpse into hearts again. I don't want you just to, to change behavior and just say, well, Judas stole and so I'm not going to steal. And, and, and Mary, you know, she, she poured out perfume and so I'm going to do that, whatever the equivalent is in your life. It's like, no, what is at the heart level? What is at that level of belief and faith and trust in the midst of your heart? Some believe, others do not. And this, is, this comes back to my contention that whatever you believe or don't believe, it will become visible and seen by others. The inner workings of your heart, at some point, you, you can't hide it forever. If you have a heart that's full of worship, you're not going to be able to hide that forever. It's going to come out in your life. And other people are going to see it and they're going to be blessed. And if you're hiding things, if you have a hardening in your heart, if in your heart, even though you sit in this room, you hate Jesus, that's going to come out eventually. Hear these words from Galatians as grace, not a threat. Hear them as grace. Uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will also he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of God. I can't in my life, okay, as this whole sewage pipe incident is happening, I cannot sow ungodliness and hatred and anger in my heart and expect to reap faith and hope and trust and joy. just can't happen, right? 
I mean, would you ever talk to a farmer? Anybody have a farming background? Did you ever plant seeds that brought forth BMWs? I mean, that's what we're tra- I mean, that is literally how absurd it is for, for me to think I can just be angry over here and then come out and be like, live a life of worship. It's like if I'm living internally Judas's life, I have no hope to live externally like Mary. I have no hope. I have no chance, no shot. I will come to demonstrate in my life what is in my heart. Listen to these, uh, for better, for worse here. This is other, other instances where we see in Scripture, where for better, for worse, this is going to come. What you sow, you're going to reap. As it was with Mary and Judas, here it is. For better, like the life of Mary. In Romans 10, 8 and 9, it says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, because if you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A belief in your heart bringing forth salvation. A belief in God bringing forth eternal life. In Proverbs 3, it says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Don't let it get out of you. Don't let it depart from you. Why? So you will find favor and good success. I got some great examples of hope people. I want to share them. This is, I mean, there are people who have such a love for God in their lives and it's being expressed. I mean, some of you think, I do not want to be like Mary, man. That is too feminine for me. I cannot get down on the floor. It's like, I want to give you some examples of people that are worshiping God and it's coming out in their lives. Pure hearts, hearts that are for God. Listen to this. Last week, Steve prayed for my roommate that I might share God's word with her. This week, we talked a lot, and I found out she doesn't believe in God. The quote from the roommate says, if there is a God, he wouldn't want people to go to hell. And then listen, listen to the hope person. This was great to have this conversation. Please continue to pray that God will use our relationship and open her eyes. Now, I want to celebrate that from a life, from a life, from a heart, the inner workings. There's just such a, a, a communication and intimacy with God, a love for God, and it's flowing out from her to others. Another one. We're going to Swaziland, Africa. Just to be able to say that, I'm going to Swaziland. I mean, that's just so cool. We're going to Swaziland, Africa on March 2nd through the 13th with Children's Hope Chest. Please pray as you feel led. Thank you. Can you see anybody with a hardened heart towards God going to Swaziland, Africa, just making the decision, I'm going to Africa to help children? It's like, wouldn't happen. I celebrate that. I praise God for that couple. Okay? Here's another one. In the midst of a way difficult situation at work, and I know this guy, and it's, it's, it's way difficult. It says this. We're bringing some issues to the union, and we'll probably have to meet this week with the higher-ups, Okay? Union representative, boss, you know, uh, executive boss, all these different people are now being brought into this. Okay? This worker in this job was just trying to confront some authority with, hey, there's difficulties with structure here. I think there's issues with safety. There's concerns that I have regarding coworkers and people and the people we're serving. And he did that in a way that was honoring Time and time and time. And it's just working its way up the chain. It's just working the way up there. But he's doing it in a way that I would say, man, that guy is blameless. He's just, he's trying to do it in a way that's worshipful. Honoring to God, honoring to others. Man, I celebrate that. That's worship. 
That is a love for God that's being poured out in your life, coming through in the in demonstrating in your life a love for Him. Okay? And if I might be so as so bold as to put my wife in this camp. I mean, the the fact that I'm not standing before you with tar and feathers and and you know, black and blue. I mean, what grace that she had. I mean, she told me. I smell something six times. She told me six or seven times. Will you figure out what that is? I just, I mean, I blew it. I totally blew it. And the way that she responded to us and all the upheaval of our lives and putting our lives on hold for a week and spending time with grandma and grandpa and, um, oh man, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Her heart being exposed and bringing a demonstration of her love for God. So thankful. These, these people all following the pattern of Mary, and I, and I thank God. Uh, for better, for worse, okay? Uh, look at what it says in Proverbs 6, verse 12, 14, and 15. A wicked man with perverted heart devises evil, sowing discord. What is the result? Calamity will come upon him suddenly. How about this? This is just a literary work of art here. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. It's like, you know, like, I mean, jealousy is not going to spare you. Jealousy will get revenge. It'll be brought forth in your life. Another one. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Is that not Judas? I mean, is that not Judas in our story here? Man, I got to tell you, this has been incredibly convicting to go through all the trials of this whole sewage thing while I'm meditating on this. It's like every moment, it's like Judas or Mary, Judas or Mary, Judas or Mary, Judas or Mary. It's like time and time and time, every moment confronted with that. And I'm sure you, you guys have had experiences that, like that this week. Moment by moment, are we going to worship God? Are we going to choose Christ? Are we going to live for him? Are we going to just let our hearts be so enamored with God? So like these people, like my wife, it flows out in a graceful life. What does this mean for Monday through Saturday? Ah, I do not want you to leave hearing like, I got to get better. You know, I got to try harder. I got to, you know, I'm kind of arrogant, so I'm going to try to be more humble. You know, I, I felt like, yeah, maybe there's been some tinges of greed and so I should, I should try and be more generous. It's like, no. I mean, as it was with my life, it's like, I put no hope in myself to overcome sin. It's like, I'm, I got no shot to overcome my own arrogance, my ego. Um, the solution to your sin isn't self-help. It's God. Solution to sexual sin is not purity. Okay, it's God. Whatever it is you're facing, the solution isn't try better. Or what's the opposite of that? It's like, no, it's God. The opposite has to be God. To think any other way, any other way than I just expressed, is as absurd as somebody who says, I'm going to try and beat death by living harder. She got it down here. <laughs> Danielle understand. It's like, that's absurd. You can't beat death by just living harder. You're going to die. What is the solution? Find Jesus Christ. Meet Jesus Christ. Meet him through his signs and his ministry as the resurrection 
and the life. This, this morning, that is what the offer is before us. Okay? Your foundation of your life, like, like it was under my sewage pipe, it might be deteriorating quickly. It might be giving way. I don't know all of you. I don't know where you're at. But Jesus this morning offers you and says, who do you say I am? I'm telling you, I'm the resurrection and life. You can have life in, through me. Not only that, if you come to me, you will have life. And do you remember what happened in Lazarus' life? He got the joy of experiencing life. Okay, he was dead, he experienced his life. Not only that, people come and they see him. And they, through him, believe in Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Let's pray. God, this morning, um, some of us might have come through this room and we're all over the map. Some might be feeling like Mary. Some might be feeling like Judas. God, I'm sure all of us can at at some level identify with both of them, the struggle um, of following you. God, I can identify with that. God, ultimately, my hope isn't in me. It's in you. It's in your gospel. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in what you did for Lazarus. While he was dead, you brought forth life. God, I ask you to do that for me and every person in this room. We can't do it on our own. God, you say in in Ephesians, even while we were dead, you made us alive. God, that is our hope this morning. Make us alive. In Jesus' name, amen.